Hello and welcome to Beat the Press, the show which looks at how footballers and the people around them deal with pressure on and off the pitch. My name is John Nasori and as ever I'm joined by my co-host and a man that fortunately wasn't snapped up during the January transfer window, it's Luke Jewison. Hi John, some of our listeners might be thinking unfortunately that I wasn't snapped up in the January transfer window. <laughs> but on a serious note, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to still be part of the club's plans going forward, Gaffer. Um, it was a bit of a damp script, this uh, transfer window, wasn't it? Like, hardly anything happened at all. Yeah, far cry from the Sunderland Till I Die documentary, where Will Grigg was the target of, of, of Sunderland's kind of um, the transfer deadline day ambitions. Uh, we had Leo Perlman on the show uh, a few months ago now, talking about the chaos that unfolded as they tried to tried to buy Will Grigg and uh, just started offering ever-increasing amounts of money for a striker that I don't think they really wanted, Luke. Well, I, I was thinking that, actually. There's probably executives up and down the land that were just glad to have a transfer window off without that kind of awful, <laughs> adrenaline fueled flurry around uh, lower league divisions to see what you can snap up. And this week, actually, we spoke to a man that would have been of real use, I think, to Sunderland's transfer department on deadline day. We spoke to Hugo Schechter, who is the former West Ham and Southampton head of player care. So, so part of Hugo's role at, at both those clubs was to uh, act as a, a point of contact during transfer dealings, helping players settle into into clubs when they when they joined, you know, potentially on deadline day. And he's recently set up his his own consultancy, the the player care group, which we we talked about with with Hugo during a really interesting conversation. Luke. Yeah, it was it was fantastic, wasn't it? Um, I mean, you know, just getting an insight into some of the, the diverse day to day jobs that the player care department picks up on behalf of uh, on behalf of a football club. I mean, you mentioned some of the things there, but you know, some of the deadline days day activities genuinely goes down to as much as getting players to and from the airport for their medical. Uh, and, and he gave that great example of you know players that have missed the deadline by fourteen seconds. That would just be because you didn't have a sufficiently well organised player care department. Um, but no, I mean, we had a fantastic conversation with him i mean we, we we covered a lot you know the origins of player care how it became a big thing for for premier league and elite clubs um we talked a bit about kind of modern challenges now because uh, you know the landscape around the need for a player care department is probably a, a lot different you know in in the 2020s than it maybe was in the late 19s early 2000s um and, and hugo having set up this you know exciting consultancy practice venture um talked a little bit about the future of player care as well because you know as we heard in the interview with him it's an it's yet another one of these things that we always hear about on this podcast where there's obvious marginal gains in terms of the the performance benefits for the club yeah absolutely and it was it was really interesting to kind of go back and, and run over some some anecdotes from from yesteryear I mean I won't give anything away but suffice to say that that Stefan Everson was was involved in in one of those stories that we talked about yeah, that anecdote definitely harks back to the dark days of player care, doesn't it, John? But anyway, here's our interview with uh, with Hugo. Uh, sit back and enjoy it. Our guest this week is West Ham and Southampton's former head of player care, founder of the Player Care Group, the UK's first consultancy group focused on player care and team operations, and an honorary member of Match of the Day's Too Good, Too Bad feature, it's our pleasure to welcome to Beat the Press, Hugo Schechter. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, that that was not something I ever thought I'd be end up on this Match of the Day, finding a wedding ring. But uh, anyway, one for the book one day. How, how did that one go down in the dressing room, Hugo? We didn't realise it until, because it only came out, I think, four or five days later. Or no, 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 actually, no, it must have been like the next night, I think, Sunday night. And uh Actually, one of my former players texted to me, like, you're on match today. And I was like, you know, I thought I'd be like in the background of a shot like I normally am. But no, literally, you know, commentary and, you know, everything and a feature of my backside on, on match today was really what I wanted. So, yeah, really nice little feature that one. <laughs> Well, well, sorry to sorry to remind you of that one. Um, so, so, Hugo, uh, we, we cover a lot on this podcast uh, about the support networks around footballers, um, but this is probably the first time we're, we're running an episode where we're touching on on player care. Yeah. Um, for our listeners that might not be familiar with with the concept, what what does player care cover in, in broad terms? Um, I think it's it's really everything f- for me that's that's not football or medical within within a football team. So, um, you know, at West Ham, I was doing you know 
team scheduling, team communication, um, team travel. I was doing um, obviously the relocation of the players, player appearances, you know, for the sponsors, partners, charities, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, my department got all the signed items done for, you know, charities, partners, fans, whatever. So like, there's so much there that's kind of like a bit of everything. And it's almost like the filler in between everything else, I guess, is how it started. And now it's obviously, you know, I, I see it's much bigger than that, but um, it's kind of basically everything that the yeah, medical or, or the football side don't really pick up. So um, quite, quite w- wide ranging, really. Hugo, am I right in saying that you, you kind of got into it after a spell in the States? Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah. So I, I was, I'd interned at Southampton and at the FA when I was at uni and I, I was doing uni out in America and um, I finished my internship and I kind of messaged Southampton and they was like, can you hire me? And they were like, you need to, you need experience somewhere else first. You know, we're not going to hire someone just out of uni. So I was like, all right, fine. So, you know, the job market, is tough anyway. Uh, it's even tougher when you're trying to work in professional football because you've got just everyone wants to do it. Um, and I ended up having to move to Indianapolis um, to a club called the Indy 11. And it was their first season, which was actually a really cool experience because you don't see clubs just like pop up here. Um, and we popped up in the second division and we went from when I arrived, we had one player, one man, obviously the manager, we had no kit, no training grounds, the stadium had just been agreed. And then, you know, eight months later we had, sold out stadium 12,000 people didn't win a game when I was there actually but we had a whole squad you know we had this we had that with it and it, and it was to, to sort of be a part of that straight out of uni to like be team operations manager and you know going from like trying to sign clubs well, we signed Cleberson the ex-Man United player as our like marquee player to dealing with like the FIFA transfer you know international transfer certificate for him to washing kit to buying the sports drinks from the, the supermarket to, you know, whatever it was. It was just, it was a really mad experience, but really, really tough, but brilliant. So, so Hugo, what was it particularly about kind of working in that kind of environment with player care that caught your imagination when you were at university? Because it, it sounds like it was something you were quite focused on quite early on. Well, I, I was always trying to do coaching, actually. Um, I kind of coached from when I was about 16. Uh, I'd got my coaching badges and, and had been coaching like my age group, so under 18s, then under 23s. Um, and that's kind of where I saw myself going. And I spoke to a couple of people and they're like, it's really hard to be a top coach if you haven't played. And like, I never, I thought myself was a decent coach, but never like a really top, top coach. And I didn't like love the game as such as I'm not going to watch hours of footage and really enjoy it. I enjoyed the more people side of it. And so when I was at uni, we actually, I don't don't say experimented because it sounds like it was deliberate, but we improved a lot of the organization around the team. And so we were playing a lot of, you know, the the level I was coaching at was very quite low level. It was all sort of amateur, obviously. But, you know, we would get an advantage by showing up on time, having had a meal, everyone knowing what they're doing and being organized. And actually that's, I guess, my first foray into player care was when we used to beat teams just by defending basically for, for sort of 60 minutes. And then, in the last 30 minutes, having, you know, having slept well, having not partied the night before, having had a good meal and knowing our plan, we would, and we, we won nearly every game. And we were, went out from outside the top thousand when I started, we were ranked top 24 in the country, you know, after three years. And for me, that don't think that was because I was an excellent coach. We played four four two every single game. <laughs> um, but it was just having that, like, we were so much better organized than everyone else. And I think that obviously at that level, it's much easier to see the differences. That's when I kind of started to realize, actually, this could be something that could be a career and that I was actually good at rather than coaching, which I was average at, I think. Nice to see someone using Mike Bassett as a managerial role yeah. model. Yeah, okay. yeah. We changed the Christmas pudding a couple of times. but uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, when, when, did, when did this kind of become an issue for, for, for Premier League clubs? I remember reading Darren Anderson's autobiography and I think he said that when Stefan Everson moved to Spurs in the mid-90s, he was, I think he was put up in a, in a hotel for a while and basically he ended up round at Anderson's house just kind of knocking on the door because he was there on his own and there wasn't a player liaison often. There was no support network for him. Yeah. How, how, do think, how do things kind of start to evolve? I think there's sort of two key like points that I, I look at in the history of player care. One was Aston Villa hiring a lady called Lorna McClellans, who I think, I, I want to say John Gregory was the manager, but I think that, I'm not sure 100%. Um, and that was like sort of 80s, early 90s. And they were kind of the pioneer of that. And Lorna was an English teacher 
Um, she spoke a number of languages and that's kind of, he, he brought her in initially to help with languages and then she kind of moved on to play a care bit or play liaison bit. And then I think it, it came, the next step forward was with Man City in the late 2010, like 2000s, um, sort of 2009, 2010 with Hayden Roberts, who kind of took it from a doing department to like a planning department, if that makes sense. So instead of just getting stuff done, he was the first one at Man City to kind of put in this is how we want to do it. We're going to sell it to the players. You know, it's going to be a structured, strategic approach to the relocation part rather than just like, we'll find you a house, we'll find you a car. It's, we'll find you that right house. We'll make sure everything works well. And this is the how the plan is what we're doing after two weeks, after four weeks, after eight weeks. And that's kind of the birth of player care as a movement, I think. Presumably the, the influx of kind of players from abroad into the Premier League must have been a big factor in kind of needing better support in this area. I mean, John mentioned the Stefan Everson example there. I think there's another one from West Ham, which I always don't enjoy, but I find very interesting when the Chilean central defender Javier Vargas came over, having had a good World Cup in 98. He was just put up in a hotel. He got stranded in London on the way to his first training session because he had a puncture. And eventually the, the story goes that he escaped for a window because he was so homesick and never, ever appeared for West Ham again. So things like that must have made clubs start to think we need to do this better. Yeah, I mean, I, I've actually not, never heard that story. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't obviously in the industry back then, but it was, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, but it's not only just, you know, uh, foreign players, it's, it's the domestic players as well. It, it can be a massive change moving from, you know, Newcastle to Plymouth. You know, it's it, the two different parts of the country, two very different ways of doing it, or even country to city or city to country or whatever it is. So it, it's, it's, I think, you know, it, it's trying to look at those marginal gains that clubs can get. And I think it, this, you know, there's normally 45 people who look after the players for the three, four hours at the training grounds and then one or no people looking after them for the other 20 hours a day. And I think what I'm trying to say, say to clubs is this is a way to reduce your risk. You know, you're putting a, a large amount of money into these players. Why would you take the risk in, in them not working out or them not settling for a very small investment in a couple of people? You can kind of reduce that risk massively. And And for me, it's, you want to appeal to them on the on the ethical and the moral side that these are human beings you look after them, obviously, but actually to sell it as a financial decision as well, it really can mean that there's no there's no negative to it really because you know you've got the financial benefits and you've got the the, the moral benefits as well. So it's just trying to get that message across at the moment. Hugo, I mean, you talked a bit about the differing approaches at, at various Premier League clubs. There, um, just from your kind of time at West Ham and, and Southampton, what, what were your teams doing kind of day in day out? Yeah, uh, Southampton, it was just me. So it was quite, I, I was kind of in that that sort of mode where you were just fighting fires all the time. Um, there, was, there wasn't much time to sort of plan or strategize or, or, or do you think I've learned, learned a lot from experience. So, you know, I, I mean, it was there, it was very low level. It was because it was just me. So it was like, you know, setting up direct debits on council tax bills, um, you know, showing them around properties, sorting out the paperwork, making sure that people aren't, you know, the cars are taxed and MOTs and it was more like administratively based. Um, at West Ham, it was it was me and, and two others. And so we were able to, I was able to take more of the team side. And so I worked more with the manager and, and his staff to deal with like um, team-wide issues. So like the team bonding activities, um, team travel, team um, scheduling and, and looking at and like helping more with the club side. Whereas my two assistants were more, day-to-day with the players although I, I dealt with the French players because I have basic French and and some of the senior English players if they were more difficult players sometimes I'd pick them up just because I had more experience but um, we kind of were able to sort of separate the roles a little bit and, and do more because we had that time and, and those resources so um, a lot of planning a lot of long-term projects which I just never got done at Southampton so yeah it was it was it's two very different levels of what we were able to achieve just with the staff that we had. And Hugo, how do the how do the managers interact with the player care side of things? Because we, we've interviewed a few guests. Uh, you know, managers can have a reputation for being control freaks. Is probably a, a polite way of putting it. Do, do they see do, do they see the benefits of what the player care function can bring, or, or do they worry a little bit that you know you're going to build up some very close relationships? Is that going to impinge on their ability to kind of run things? Yeah, I, I think different managers have different levels of interest. Some managers are like, I just don't want to have any problems. You crack on. And some managers, <laughs> you know, want to sit with me and go. What what can we do to make things better? You know, yeah. what do you think about this? And so, um, you know, the, probably the one I had the 
who probably believed in it the most was probably David Moyes in the fact that really became a part of his sort of key team, which I'd not really, I'd, I'd been at that level before, but a lot of the times it was just, this is our decision, crack on with it. Whereas under David, it was, you know, with him, his coaches, the head of medical, it was kind of like, we are going to make the decision as a group and I could give feedback and I could give, actually, I think this might affect this. And he would listen to me like, okay, actually, I understand that, but we're going to do it anyway. Or no, actually, that's a great point. Let's do it like this. So like that was the first time that a manager's really kind of bought into a hundred percent, but it doesn't mean that the other managers I work with haven't disregarded it. It's just some, some are like, I've got so much on my plate with the football. You just crack on with that side or some of it like, what do you think? What can we do? And um, I, I think, what I've really enjoyed is I've worked with, I think seven or eight managers now is picking up the bits, bits from each one. Like they, they've all, they're all very good managers in, in their own way. And, you know, you don't get bad managers in the Premier League. You get ones that work and ones that don't work so well, but you don't really get bad managers. And so to pick up little bits from, from each of them, like Maurizio Pellegrino at Southampton was a really like philosophical guy, really deep thinker, like would pull you into his office and talk to you about, some random obscure like thing. And you're like, what's talking about? But actually like, I really bought into him. I really liked him. And I think it's a shame it didn't work out for him at Southampton because really nice guy, but just really passionate, really engaging. And it just didn't work for him. And so again, I, I kind of picked up from him, like how to talk in a way that really grabs people's attention, you know, when you need it. And, and I think it, it's just different bits you pick up from his manager. I think it's fascinating. And I suppose the, the player care role, you talked about it, touches on so many different parts of, of a football club and a, and, and a player's life that you're going to have interactions with, with various different departments across the football club. I mean, and, you know, we, we speak to a lot of psychologists on, on this show. And I was just interested to know a bit more about the dynamic, if there is one, between kind of player care departments and, and psychology departments. Yeah, I, I think that one of the key roles I see player care holding in any club is, is this sort of gatekeeper idea where you're keeping... Not, it's sort of three parties even though every gate is only two ways you've got the playing squad the, the team and then you've got not only internal influences but external influences and trying to be not only keep the bad influences away but also keep the players away sometimes because you know we've had issues where you know the sky's gone down and they've called the guy who installed it two years ago saying you idiot what have you done blah, blah, blah. and the guy's like what is going on here you know just because they don't understand how it works so it, it's for us it's trying to be that little gatekeeper and, and making sure that player appearances they're doing are reasonable, but also that they're doing them. In terms of psychology, I think I'm very aware and I, I'm, I'm very keen to stress that I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a counsellor, but it's that first sort of flag, uh, you know, ability to flag, ability to signpost where I actually know them personally pretty well. And and you can come, when they come into a room, you can kind of see are they in a good mood and they're in a bad mood, is something wrong, something changed. And so it wouldn't be that I'd be like, you know, let's design a plan to help you out of this. It would be, I think you should speak to this person or flag it to the psychologist. Look, you might want to touch base with this player. But sometimes they just want to chat. And I think, you know, often the focus on like mental health is on the sort of severe, you know, suicidal thoughts, you know, massively depressed side. We're actually, majority of people live in some sort of spectrum away from that. And so sometimes it's just, you know what, can we grab a coffee? And they want to chat or, you know, they want a distraction and we want to go and just play like poker for, you know, an, an hour on the bus or something like that. And they just, you know, take their mind off of whatever's happening. So it, it's not, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a mental health expert. It's, it's just knowing them well enough to know when there might be an issue and then kind of having those tools and that relationship to kind of pry a little bit and then see if they push back. And if not, you know, to try and talk to them about it, but definitely not out aren't like trying to be a, a sort of, psychologist or anything like that it's it's really important that you signpost these things to the appropriate people do you think those kind of things are going to become a, a bigger consideration for for kind of player care professionals in the future i mean i'm thinking about things like the social media pressure that's on that's on players i mean there's been some pretty high profile sort of despicable incidents in the last few weeks involving twitter and social media which must have an impact on players and which you as a player care professional must be interested in keeping an eye on yeah i think it's it's interesting that actually I think a lot of players are moving away from social media and have been doing for a couple of years now. I think the, not the majority, but a lot of players have managed accounts that they don't check ever. They don't have access to and it's generic stuff, you know, and, and you can tell when someone does their own account or has, you know, it's, it's the graphic that goes up on the match day of them. That's very you know well-designed. And then it's great to have three points or we'll get back soon. You know, like 
Yeah. You can tell. Um, some players will have that and then still read it. Some players won't have any access to it or any knowledge of it at all. And I think a lot of players are turning away from social media because it was started as something nice to try and reach out to fans, to try and make them closer. But whether it's criticism of old posts from 10 years ago or, you know, something misconstrued or it's them being stupid or, you know, fans being being abusive or whatever. I think the players, from my opinion and my, my experience, are, are moving away from social media because they're not seeing the benefit of it. And, like, even the, the pre-season Premier League FA briefing is about if you do this on social media, you will be banned, you will be banned. <laughs> so wh- why would they bother? You know, and I, th- I think it's a shame because you're – you're 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 creating more distance from the players you know and i i think it, it's a tr- like something like the edison Cavani one I, I don't have a knowledge of the internally of the situation but i think th- that that would probably mean that he won't really use social media ever again um and i think whether what he said it was racist or not i actually don't know because i don't know the context of it i don't know you know enough about sp- south american culture was it sh- was he silly probably would he have known probably not should someone have tra- trained him yes probably but you know it's difficult when everyone's working remotely and not allowing the training ground and all this, you know, so, you know, should things have happened probably, but I think you look at instance like that, where it's just like, why should they bother? You know, they, they, they might as well just not. And I think that's an increasing shame really in the game. Yeah, it's really interesting. We had, we had an, another guest on the podcast who pretty much said exactly the same as you, where the, the benefits are so small now, but the risks are so great that, yeah. you know, if you're a professional footballer, why would you? Uh, that, that was his view. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think it, it's just going to get worse and worse because, you know, when you see players getting banned for stuff they tweeted, you know, 8, 10, 12 years ago, like we all put cringy stuff up on social media when we were 12, you know, like... No, I, I deleted my Facebook for that exact reason because I popped up and Hugo said in 2007 he had cereal today. <laughs> like, and you're like, why would I post that? You know, but like, like that's that's what we all did. You know, everyone did that. And I think hopefully, as obviously this is more of a cultural comment, but as we get to a point where everyone has, you know, stuff like when you see prime ministers with their like Bebo photos from 2008, you know, <laughs> that's when it, no one will care anymore because. It's it's an older generation who are like that's terrible that he's done that and yeah it was it is silly but that's when Twitter was just for your mates or or whatever and it's just I think some sort of context should be important that you know is Andre Gray homophobic I would doubt it somehow I really would doubt it but he tweeted something silly years ago he got banned you know okay so I think that kind of stuff makes it really difficult for players to really be authentic and genuine and and the ones that do are either criticised or. You know, I can't think of many other than probably Marcus Rashford, who kind of is able to be genuine and not get killed for it on a, on a regular basis. So, yeah, I think it's difficult. Yeah, I think that's the crux, isn't it? Because I imagine that there's there is some some pressure, I guess, on on players to ensure or increase their kind of marketability by by having a social media presence. But as you said, if they're if they're not <clears throat> if they're not getting kind of positive coverage, then I, I guess the the temptation is to do what you were talking about, which is to basically outsource it and just have someone there yeah. as whoever it is, you know, whatever player kind of just running their social media accounts. And, and yeah, it's a shame because you're not really interacting with the player at all there, are you? No, and I, and I think, you know, I think the the abuse issue comes down to like, if you're in the stadium and someone shouts something you, you know, out of 60, 70,000 people, you kind of just, I don't say write it off because you, you don't, you still can't hear it. But it's, it, it's separate. It's like they're over there in the crowd. They've said something that you're an idiot or whatever. And you kind of go, okay, fine. When it's sent to your phone and your phone follows you around and every time you open your phone up, you're getting abuse. It's like, why would you want that? You know, like uh, we had one player who had quite high profile struggles with his performances. And I remember he had a particularly bad game, one, one away game. And I was sat next to him on the bus and his phone was just pinging with like, you're a disgrace, get out of our club. Like, and I said to him, I said, like, why don't you just turn your social media off? And he's like, it's part of being a footballer. And I was like, it's not though. It's like, if you have a bad game, yes, you're going to get some negativity, but there's no reason you should have notifications on that every time someone sends you, it wasn't racist, it wasn't abusive like that. It was just nasty. And so, you know, if someone, you know, shouts across the road to you that you're you're an idiot or and I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but if you're worse than an idiot, then, then you know, you kind of like, okay, that was weird, whatever, move on. But if someone's like in your face, 
then you react differently. And I think that's kind of the weird thing with social media is that it's supposed to get people connected, but actually it just opens you up to have on your phone all the time, just message, 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 you know, abuse. And a lot of them do read it, you know, it's difficult. So yeah, I, I don't really know what you can do on that really, to be honest. So taking it, it's, it's, it's fine to, to swear. We have, we have Bruno Di Michaelis. He's a, he's a kind of a rather fiery Italian okay. psychologist on the show a few weeks ago. And, uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know. Breaking that barrier. Sometimes it's, it's not okay, so yeah. Fine. Yeah, we, we've, we've given up trying to tame our guests, Hugo, so don't worry <laughs> okay, about that. Okay. Just on that point you were saying, it's interesting you said you were sort of sat on the bus next to a player kind of in that kind of quite horrible situation. I mean, I think I read somewhere that you yourself have sort of experienced the darker side of Twitter sometimes in, in, in your personal life. Does that help you, you think, to kind of advise just in those informal conversations you have? <sighs> you know, I, I don't think any, I really have had too much abuse i sometimes get you know a a silly comment and i'll make a joke out of it or something like that but you know one of the players said to me once because he uh, it was a player a different player who had been criticized quite heavily in the press i said how how do you how do you keep going and he said i I just worry about the i just worry about the opinions of people who matter to me yeah everyone else i don't care and you know that would be kind of my advice it's easier said than done of course but you know if if Doris in Liverpool thinks you're a, thinks you're a wanker and good for her. You know, like, I don't care who she, I don't know who she is, you know, whatever. So it, it's, it, it's not about, I can't say about any, a lot of the experiences that players have had, but I've kind of seen their reactions to a lot of the same things. And so it's just trying to say like, look, you know, you don't need social media, D- delete it for a month, you know, delete it for a week, delete it for a day, you know, like, and it, it's, it doesn't matter. Like no one's expecting you to post. No one's like, Oh, we just won two nil, and this player didn't post us a congratulations message. No, no one really is like is like is thinking about that. It's it's whatever. So it's it's with everything. You kind of look at the situation, you look at your own experiences, and you try and make a judgment call about how you can give advice. But sometimes it's not advice that's needed. It's just silence. You know, sometimes they just want to sit in silence, or sometimes they want to talk, or sometimes they want a distraction. And it's it's having those people skills and that experience to try and know what's right and what 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 situation. I suppose COVID's heightened a lot of this. I mean, I've, I've certainly found that I spend probably a bit more time on, on Twitter now than, than I did prior to COVID. What, what kind of challenges did that present for you during the kind of latter point of your time at West Ham? I think um, COVID was mad because like, going back to the beginning of the pandemic, we, we played Arsenal. I think it was our last game before the lockdown. And this was when it was like, this virus that was, you know, that was in China and not really in the UK, but I think there'd been a couple of cases. And I remember we got the, the information from the Premier League. Everything's the same. You just can't shake hands. The players are not going to shake hands before the match. And when you look back at it, you're like, that's mad. But I remember us thinking like, I remember having to go to players and be like, listen, this is the rule. Just, just, it's weird, but whatever. And I remember everyone, like when I saw my, we all saw our, like people because everyone at the clubs knows each other really, and so you, you got you see your friends at Arsenal and you go oh, oh can't can't take hands with you, and I remember like it just being a bit of a joke, and then like two days later, Arteta tested positive, and everyone had a meltdown like it was like we're all gonna die oh my god blah, 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 blah. and it was like it went from a bit of a joke to like super serious really quickly, and. Then we were like, well, do, who has to self-isolate? Do the, do the players all have to, do the whole team have to self-isolate? And this was right at the beginning where it was before lockdown. And so no one really knew what the rules were or what you're supposed to do and contact tracing wasn't a thing and all this. And so suddenly like we were like, because I remember we had, a, we had, a, we had a, uh, a meeting on the Friday and we played Wolves on the Saturday. And it was like, we still didn't know at that point where we, whether we were going to have fans, not have fans, whether the game was going to go ahead, nothing. And we were like, we just don't know what to plan. I was getting the ticket request for the players and we're getting all these questions and like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, I've never run a team through a pandemic. You know, I, I don't even know what a pandemic is. So it's, I'm getting all these questions. The head of medical is getting all these questions and he's the same. You know, we had doctors and physios, but they're doctors of sports medicine, not doctors of, you know, infectious diseases and all this kind of stuff. So it was, it was just a lot of like, what well, this is crazy. And then the league stopped. And then, you know, the first time since the second world war, the league, league had stopped. And we were like, this is crazy. But again, we were still like, well, maybe they'll just have a week's break and then we'll play Wolves next weekend or maybe Wolves get put in the, the season. So we, we need to be ready. We need to keep training. And we were just like, we did just have no idea what we were supposed to be doing. And then once that we kind of realized the league wasn't going to come back for a couple of weeks, um, you know, we kind of shut everything down. Everyone went into their flats and their houses. But, you know, we had players who were living alone, not from England, isolated in a flat in London, and that's really tough. And there's nothing you can, you can call him every day, but there's nothing you can say to make that 
less scary, less painful. You know, I think, you know, we had a number of players from Spain, Italy, that where those countries were getting absolutely hammered by COVID and we were kind of a couple of weeks behind. And it was scary because these guys, you know, couldn't go home. They couldn't really do anything. And which, you know, the fitness coach did a really good job of, of putting on like training programs at home. We got gym equipment delivered, but we really didn't know what we were doing. And, and so, you know, the Premier League was, I think it's, it's unfair to say the Premier League was caught unawares because I don't think anyone planned for this. Like, I don't think it was fair to say the Premier League should have planned for this, but it was, we just didn't know what was going on. And, and from going from a really structured environment where, you know that from June, no, yeah, end of June to middle of May, you've, you're working every weekend. You're, you've got four international breaks. Otherwise, you're there every weekend. This is your schedule, bam, 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 to being like, we don't know when we're going to play. We don't know if you can go on holiday. We don't know when we'll play. We don't know if we'll ever play again. We don't know if it will be a year, a week, a month. And obviously, everyone's asking people like myself for, for answers. We just didn't have them. And, and, and it was really... It was really unsettling because you're just so used to being in this routine that suddenly you weren't. But yeah, it, it's it was really really interesting um, and really difficult to do it. Um, and, and then it was switching my team from working in, in on site to working remotely, and we were checking in with the players and trying to help them with stuff, but we couldn't get like food delivery slots like everyone else, you know. So all these same problems that everyone else had, and we're trying to be the advice on it when I'm still trying to work out what I'm doing myself, you know, worrying about my parents, all this kind of stuff. So it was, it was a really interesting time, but sort of a time where you kind of pivot and then can kind of take a step up and, and, and be there for people. So yeah, fascinating, really. Must've been a really interesting time. I, I imagine player care became very prominent in that period that you just described, particularly as, as lockdown. So, so suddenly, you know, you're, you're, you're the front and center of the club, really kind of looking after player welfare. But, but you yeah. talked about kind of checking in with the players. And like you said, you could have a zoom call and we probably all have the same with our colleagues and our family in terms of just checking in. Were there other specific interventions that you were able to kind of come up with over the course of time as you kind of you know, were able to think about your response in a little bit more detail? Yeah. I mean, I think we were only, we're only actually off, like, like away from the training ground for maybe about five, six weeks. So yeah. like it wasn't the same as the lockdown for everyone else because yeah. people yeah. came back. So it wasn't a mass amount of time. We we ended up sort of organizing like players who could do like um, remote learning. So we had a couple do like a property management course, a couple do a marketing course, uh, one doing financial investment. So it was just like the guys were pretty bored. And I think it was just trying to keep them entertained. The fitness coach was sending them instructions. They all got these like wearables that they tracked all their 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 fitness and we did like a group yoga session or whatever it was yoga stretch session on on a saturday morning on, on zoom and um great way to spend your weekend that was, was that what I, I was basically on there not obviously to do the exercise but to like make sure everything was working so i had to like get up on a saturday morning and like and then just set up a zoom and then just sit there and watch it and, make, and i was like I don't, i'm not an it guy if the zoom goes down i don't know what i'm gonna do about it but anyway um yeah the lead, the biggest first world problem ever um but yeah it was you know just trying to reach out but some people wanted that individual contact every day some players like i'm 35 years old like i'm fine just just leave me alone kind of thing and, you know, again that's where you try and work out you know who, who needs the support and you know uh, it was it was what can we do for players and the answer was not really a lot. You know, there was not really a lot that we could do. Um, you know, we looked at trying to get like a, a shopping service where we could send a driver or something to go to the shop and pick up stuff. But, you know, there was just shortages and, you know, taxi drivers don't really want to do it either. So it was, there, w- there was a lot of different things that we we're trying to deal with, but, you know, we kind of came through. And, and I think the biggest issue, as I said earlier, was the lack of clarity of when we're going to be back because footballs just like to be planned and they have their whole schedule planned for them as the staff. And we just didn't know. We'd get on a call um, every, I think it was Tuesday or Thursday, and Karen Brady would come from the um, shareholders meeting, the Premier League shareholders meeting, kind of give give the information to, you know, myself, the manager, the head of medical, and then we would disseminate, we would make that decision and then disseminate it out. Um, but like, you know, you're basically waiting for that call to say, are we playing next week? And it was like, uh, no, okay. And then it was like, okay, next week. And it, it was it was really, really tough to know what we're doing. And, and But yeah, it, it same for everyone, you know, like everyone was in the same boat and we probably, we returned to norm, normal much earlier than, than everyone else because we were back in the training ground by like mid-May. So it was, it, it was what it was kind of thing. Had the, um, had the kind of fatigue factor set in by the time you left West Ham here, was that having an effect on, on players? Because clearly that's, I mean, that, yeah. that, that seems to be a reality for all clubs at the moment. Yeah, I think it's really tough because we normally work 
like 11 months straight and it's kind of the trade-off that you get you work 11 months flat out or 10 and a half months flat out and then you get between three and six weeks off in the summer to really just completely switch off and recover um last season we did i think it was like 14 months or 15 months in a row um and then had two weeks off where we couldn't really really leave the country and then back to another for another year and i know personally i, I burnt out like i completely burnt out and i was by the time I left in December, it was, yes, this is a great opportunity for me to start my own company, but it was also like, I can't do another five months of this. I just, I just couldn't. Um, and I had no desire to really keep, keep doing it. Um, and I think you'll see that more and more, you know, that every, I think everyone in football has needed their pound of flesh. And I think the problem is that no one's really, you know, the, what have what the compromise been on playing times? No FA Cup replays, single leg League Cup semi-finals and that's it i don't think anything else has been cancelled you've got international breaks with three games of two for some reason where there's friendlies being played which for me is a shambles you've got international players traveling internationally in the middle of a pandemic for a friendly game and then you know the regulations are different with every squad there's no set regulations so that kind of thing was pretty pretty awful to be fair and, you know, the fact that Spurs had, I think, a, a Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday or something, disgraceful. Like, it's, it's, it's just not, not right. Um, but for some reason, we've got two domestic cup competitions still. We've still got Premier League games. We've still got international breaks. So, you know, it, it's, I don't know what football's expected from this because I think you already see, you've already seen a couple of game weeks. I think the second one over Christmas was just terrible. There was like... 13 goals in, in, in all 10 games. Um, the end of the season is going to be a drag, I think. I think you just can see. It. And then the Euros, I don't even know what quality that's going to be because you, like England have just announced two friendlies before before the Euros and I get they need to have that prep, but these guys will have not stopped for effectively two years. And uh, I, I understand that it needs to happen, but I, I'll be interested to see if you get high profile players just pulling out or, um, you know, the, the standard being so low at the Euros, you know, they're still saying they're going to play it across nine different countries or whatever it is. I mean, fascinating to see how they managed to pull that one off because, but you know, it, that's, that's football for you really is it's just push and push and push and push. And I think that's fine. The guy's getting paid and, and you need to keep going, but I think the quality will dip. It does feel like more than ever footballers are just being treated as assets at the moment, doesn't it? And, and not, as, not as people. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's telling for me that the government, you know, keep trying to throw them under the bus. It did it right at the beginning where it was saying, oh, well, the footballers should take a pay cut to pay for the NHS or whatever. And it was like, what? 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 Like, fund it properly. Like, don't, why is it, why is it a footballer's job to do that? You know, and, and then the players did this charity, the, the NHS things together. And, you know, I think footballers are very easy to have a pop at. Um, but, you know, that's the contracts they agreed to, the clubs agreed to, the Premier League agreed to, you know, that, they're getting paid what they're worth in market value and they generate more money than they make. So, you know, what's the problem? Um, but yeah, it's a push and a push and a push. And I think it's an easy deflection where Matt Hancock can criticize a footballer or footballers in general. And then the whole conversation switches away from the government to them. But, you know, that's, that's fine. But it's, you know, we were trying to get, we were trying to, you know, looking at exemptions and the, the, the FA and the government put an exemption for players to be able to play, travel internationally to play for the national teams, but not to go on holiday. And so it's either safe to travel or it's not. It shouldn't matter whether you're flying to play in a national competitive environment or to go on holiday. And so, again, this was the kind of issue where we had, you know, my team, I remember we, the, the last game of the season, it was Aston Villa at home, at last of Project Restart. And the night before, the government changed the restrictions to take Spain off the list. And Spain had been like a, a quarantine-free country for the whole whole time. And we'd been hammering the guys constantly, you can't go to these countries, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And then the night before the game, Spain was taken off the list. And so we had about 12 guys booked to go to Ibiza. We had Spanish players who now couldn't go see their families. And it was that hope that they were kind of going for. And again, people are going to say, well, boo, boo-hoo, they're footballers, you know, but as a person, we've all looked forward to things in the last year that we've not been able to do. And it was absolute chaos. The night before. And luckily we didn't need to win that game really to stay in the league because, you know, I, I you know, basically it was absolute pandemonium. We had players in tears. We had this, you know, this, and it was like, what has just happened here? And so again, we were like, we, I had one of my members of staff on call the whole holiday period being like, check those regulations every hour, 
the players getting added on. We had, we had it with France got put on right at the end. We were trying to charter planes out of France to get them out before the quarantine, but you couldn't get private planes because everyone had the same idea. Everyone in, you know, the Côte d'Azur and Monaco was trying to get out of there as well. And so you couldn't even get private planes. So we're like, well, you have to drive through a border and we'll get this. And, it, and you know, like it was, it was like the Great Escape and it was just, but genuinely like that was the pressure that they're under. And so it was, it was constant living in that sort of like, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do that? And it, it, it was, you know, as I said, are, are people in worse situations? 1000%. There are people who have no sympathy for footballers, but being on the inside and seeing them as, as people and then being pushed and pushed and pushed. And I think it's, it's something to, to consider that I think, you know, next summer it has to be a decent break. And otherwise, you know, you're just going to have such a, a poor quality, increasing injuries. And I think you'll have to start having players walk away from the game younger and younger. I suppose it's a bit of a double-edged sword potentially for, for player care here because, um, I mean, obviously to some extent, the fact that there's such pressure on footballers, I, I guess, kind of presents an opportunity potentially for player care mm. departments to, to kind of really show the value that you were talking about. I suppose on the other hand, clubs are facing real financial pressures and that there will be, I, I suppose, a, you know, a, a pressure on executives to, to kind of cut their cloth accordingly. How have you kind of found, kind of, you know, now stepping out of, that environment and kind of starting your own venture. How have you found kind of receptive clubs are to, to kind of player care? I think I, I never want obviously players to suffer in order to have to prove my worth. But, um, you know, yeah, I think you, you see it more and more. But I think actually with budgets being squeezed actually helps player care because I'm saying to you, you're spending £50 million on a player. What If it doesn't work out, that costs you maybe £30 million off his transfer budget. The cost of a player care department is like 100 grand a year, 150 grand a year. You know, like it, it's it's minimal. It's what you pay people, one player in two weeks. So I'm saying we can massively reduce risk of transfers not working. So it's saying that instead of rebuying a new player every two years, you can maybe buy a new player every three years and that pays for my department for 100 seasons. So like actually it's probably a smarter way to spend the money than, you know, giving a, an agent an extra bonus or something like that. So, you know, I, I think it's becoming more and more interesting with financial fair play, with a hit to, to the revenues. I'm getting a lot of people like, okay, well, I didn't realize it would be so cheap. First of all, I didn't realize, you know, players, we're not buying houses for players with a club credit card. It's, we will help the players go through that process of buying a house. It's their money. We just help them with the solicitor and reading the paperwork and going through and connecting to the right people and making sure they're not getting ripped off, but it's not, the club is not repaying for that. So it's all the money that the players own spend. So for me, it's a very cost-effective way to, to make a huge difference. And, and Hugo, there must, I mean, the, the financial benefits of kind of protecting a £50 million investment, I mean, that's an absolute no-brainer, isn't it? And it seems obvious. There must be other kind of non-financial benefits that, that a robust and effective player care function can bring a club as well. Yeah, I mean, but even to add on to that, you know, even to get them to do all the player appearances, that's another thing where that's where clubs make a lot of money from sponsors is getting them to do these things. Often players don't want to do it, even though it's in their contract. So it's having that good relationship between player and club. We're actually thinking, yeah, I'm happy to do that. You know, I, I will do that because I can force a player to go to a player appearance. But if he doesn't want to be there, he's going to sit there and answer one word answers. And it'll be, it'll be terrible content. They won't use it. So, you know, that's something. But but even just, you know, to have that good feeling where if you lose a game, you can bounce back from it because everyone's together. Everyone's supportive of each other. It's not finger pointing that comes from team bonding. It comes from good experiences, comes from good appreciation of the club, you know, manager understanding the players needs, the need that, you know, the players understanding what the manager needs them to do. You know, it, it's all about when you talk about marginal gains and you're talking about, right, we're going to have this efficient pre-match because of this. And then, you know, well, if everyone's miserable, you know, it doesn't matter what fish you eat, you can eat shark, dolphin, whatever. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to have the same benefit as if you have a really, really switched on squad that's really motivated. And I think when you talk about winning teams, if you ask those players, the manager, what was the best about it? It was that mentality, that atmosphere. We just had confidence. And I'm not saying that I can give confidence to any team I work with, but again, you're taking away potential distractions. You're taking away um, issues. You know, it might be the fact that you've got a really bad win- uh, losing run, but you just say, right, okay, obviously not in COVID times, but we're going to go out for a meal tonight. We're going to lock the doors. We're going to do karaoke. And it sounds ridiculous, but actually everyone has a good time. Everyone lets their hair down a little bit. They bond with each other. And you come back the next day and you're like, that was a great time with a really good laugh. I spoke to him. I'd never really spoken to him before. We kind of relaxed the team. It costs you nothing to do karaoke. You know, like everyone does it. 
So, and I'm not saying you should have weekly karaoke sessions. It's about that, that big impact, like one-off events. And so doing stuff like that, doing a hike, doing a, you know, whatever it is, it, it has the benefits that it gives like the kick up the arse sometimes. And I think to say that like, yeah, you know, you have to be eating like this all the time. Well, actually on someone's birthday, let's bring in a cake because they feel a little bit better. You know, if everyone remembered their birthday, really nice. They've had a piece of cake. Now they're not going to suddenly become, you know, two miles an hour slower. They're not going to suddenly let in goals because they had one piece of cake. They working out, you know, loop burning thousands of calories every day. But it's just about trying to have that, those softer skills, that softer approach to what can be quite a harsh and transactional um, environment. I'm just wondering what Mark Noble's karaoke song of choice is now. <laughs> we, never, we never did karaoke with West Ham, but That's it's just an idea. So I was going to yeah. say that is so you cannot break the sanctity of the karaoke room. What goes no, on no. there is <laughs> private. That's never to be shared with the world. Exactly. <laughs> um, Hugo, I was just going to say uh, it, it's interesting what you say there because I'm sure there are so many factors at play which you know affect the performance on the field, and and player care undoubtedly is one of them. But it's very hard to kind of separate the benefit that the yeah. player care brings. But I suppose if you take a step back and look at, you know, the two clubs you've worked with, Southampton and West Ham, mm. objectively speaking, you'd said that both of those clubs have really gone places and therefore kind of investing in player care clearly must be part of that. I mean, that would be a fair assessment, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can take credit for no, it. No, no. Yeah. You know, but I think, yeah, but it, it, everything was, you know, it, at Southampton, it was a really well-run club with, with good ambitions and everyone knew where they stood. And we imported young people who we probably gave them their first real opportunity in a lot of a lot of different positions. Good people who really stepped up and and we had a good staff, we had a good training ground, we had good managers, we had a good squad. You know, it worked there. And, and but then they had they've had a couple of bad years, you know, where they almost got relegated twice. And coincidentally, when I left, I can't say that again. That's because it, we went fifth when I was there, and then seventeenth when I wasn't there because of me. <laughs> but you know, all sorts of different issues. But again, I was well on club. West Ham, very different structure, very different sort of principles. But, you know, they let me do, they let basically said, we're hiring you to run player care, run it, do whatever, whatever you recommend we're going to go with. And I can show them the benefit of that over a number of years. So, you know, I, I don't think you can say, you can point to any one thing at any club that means success. It's when everything works well together. And, um, you, you know, I, to be fair, like West Ham's success right now is, is a surprise. Like it's, it's, I'm really happy for them and it's great for them, but I couldn't really put my finger on and say, why it's happening or, or how long it will go on for because for me it, it's that that's that's just what it is you know it's it's great they've had a nice little run they've got some good confidence that's great and you know i'm sure i've got 0.001 percent of that that i can say that i contribute to that but you know i think football is so quick to say these guys are rubbish or these guys are excellent and i think the reality is, is that no one's excellent and no one's rubbish like look at southampton three three months ago they were top of the premier league and everyone was like, oh, best club in the world. They've just lost 9-0. They're 11th or 12th on the table. They're not terrible. Ralph Hasenhutl is not terrible. He's also not the best manager of all time. They're all just in the middle. And I think like, you see the narratives have changed so much this season from Chelsea being going to win the title, manager sacked. You've got Man United going to win the title. They're now whatever points behind, but actually they're back up again. Man City, dreadful. Pep should be sacked to leading the league by five points. Jurgen Klopp, amazing what he's done with all the injuries. Now, below Southampton, or equal to Southampton in the league. Uh, sorry, West Ham in the league. And it's like, people are not rubbish. People are not amazing. Everyone is good. And it just, football changes in peaks and troughs. And like, this is West Ham's time, which is fantastic. But it will soon not be their time. And it doesn't mean that David Moyes is the terrible manager. It's just, that's the way football is. People win games, they lose games. Mourinho, oh, to... First time he's lost two consecutive home games in Premier League. But that's such a niche stat. Like, what, what is that? You know, like, it it's, doesn't make him a bad manager. You know, and I think that's where football on the outside is so, it's so emotionally led. And I think that the press, you know, the, the Sky Sports and all that, they, they try and push these narratives where it's, it's disaster or amazing. And, and the reality is, on the inside, it's pretty level, level sailing most of the time. Uh, I think you hit upon it there, Hugo, actually. We, uh, again, just kind of, you know, we had Bruno Di Michaelis on the show a few weeks ago. He was talking about AC Milan. I'm not comparing AC Milan to West Ham, but I think, you know, it was interesting that he was kind of talking about the importance of club culture. So, he, you know, his point was, well, actually, during his time there, they had three separate managers and they managed to sustain a level of success because 
everything behind the scenes was contributing to it. Um, you know, it wasn't just the manager, it wasn't just the coaching staff, it wasn't just you know his department, the psychology department. Yeah. Um, it was everything. Um, and, and I guess you know, player, player care is part of that. How though do you kind of uh, how do you beyond the financial benefits you talked about, kind of prove the value of something that's kind of you know, I suppose to the untrained eye, quite kind of difficult to yeah see that see the kind of quantitative value in. Yeah, I think I think it is hard to prove. You know, there are metrics that. I'm part of working on that's going to make it a more qualitative approach in the future. But um, it's, you, you've really got to just come back to the, the feedback. And I think player care is a good player care is a balance between are the players happy and is the club happy? If the players are happy and the club's not, you're likely a doormat of some kind where, you know, whatever they say, oh, you don't have to do player appearances, you don't have to do this, don't worry about it, I'll get you out. The club would be furious at that. If, if you're too on the club side, then the player's not going to trust you. They're not going to open up to you. So it's really about that there's fine balance between player and club. And it's it's trying to find that that right balance. And it's really difficult because you you in player care, I'm especially as head of player care, I was subservient in some ways where a player could come in and give me, you know, here, can you sort that out? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'll get that done. Also, you know, a player's not going to a player appearance. You better go in there right now or we're going to have serious problems. You know, we're going to try and find you or whatever it is and so you are their boss not their boss their direct boss but you are senior to them and you're also junior to them at the same time and you're club employee but you're supporting the players and so you've got to be so many different things at the same time and it's really hard to get that that balance spot on and there were certainly times in my career where I look back and I said I've not got that right and my, my judgment was wrong on that case because you know I think especially at Southampton I was probably too friendly with the players and that was something I acknowledged when I went to West Ham was I need to be not unfriendly with the players, but professional. Like, you know, like I'm not going to hang out with them. I'm not going to go for dinner with them. I'm not going to, you know, like if it's a, if there's a work reason to do something, then 100%, I'll go to the house and check on something or see how they're doing. But it's not just like, hey, do you want to play PlayStation? And I think that was where my kind of naivety at Southampton came in. And it means that you have good professional relationships. They respect you, but also if you have to tell them bad news or you have to be strong with them, then they respect that. And I think that's, so the only way you can really get a good measure of how good the player care is by, is by feedback. And I think one of the things that I was surprised with when I launched my business was I had to go back and get testimonials from people. And I found it really awkward because I've never really asked these guys for very much. And then having to like, email Ronald Koeman after three years after I last spoke to him and going, hi, Ronald, I know you're quite busy with Barcelona right now, but <laughs> would you be able to write how amazing I am so I could put up my website? And funnily enough, he wrote back straight away and sent, here we go, you know? And I was like, wow, amazing. Like, re- not expecting it. And I think if you read the testimonials, they are, that you can tell it's not just like, Hugo's great, really like him. It's, the, it's really personal. Like, Virgil van Dijk talks about, Hugo's someone I trust. I can't remember the exact quote, but I trust Hugo, the most important thing in my life, family. So that's just more than like, yeah, I worked with him. He was all right kind of thing. And so I put those on the website not to try and say like, oh, look who I work with. It's more that actually that level of trust goes beyond to people who are quite senior in the game, but also like it's a longstanding relationship. And that's the trust that I built out, even though I don't work with any of these people on the website. Yeah, well, none of them now they still kind of come back and, and they, they value that. And I think that doesn't mean that I'm the best or I'm amazing. It, it's, it's, I've tried to get that balance right wherever I've gone. I've got pretty close to it at Southampton. I think I've probably got it almost smack bang on at, at West Ham. But that's, that's really hard. And, and a lot of people struggle with that or, or struggle to understand the nuance of that, really. I always think with testimonials, having worked with clients in my, in my professional life, almost the fact that they're willing to do it is is the testimonial. Yeah. It, yeah. it kind of doesn't matter the content for what they yeah. say. It, like you said, if Ronald Koeman dropped everything to do it, that means he valued what you did, right? So, exactly. so that's really nice. Yeah, and and you know that was a shock because I, I, that was one of the ones I was like, I'm just going to throw that one out there and see if I get it. You know, it was not like he will definitely do it. Some of them I was more convinced that they would, and wouldn't. some that I thought would do it didn't, and so that's fine. You know, but it, it's. Again, it's, you can open that brochure and go, oh, yeah, fair play to him, you know. And I think hopefully in time I'll replace those testimonials with people I've worked with in, with the business rather than, you know, I've worked with before in my previous job. So, but, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. Some people disregard it. Some people take it, you know, with a lot of praise. But, yeah, it's, again, a different relationship than I've had before with players. 
So Hugo, just uh, I mean, just thinking about some of the things you said around. I mean, it's it's about marginal gains, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but a lot of what we're talking about here is is around marginal gains. Given where you are in the business and in the profession, what what do you think the future holds for player care? Because clearly there is there is you know obviously something there for clubs. Where where do you see it going and developing in the future? Well, I certainly hope so, because otherwise my business uh, <laughs> player care will be a bit of a disaster. But um, yeah, no, I think um, I think trying to convince clubs of the value of, of doing a properly staffed department I think to try and say to clubs look you know there's a Premier League club with nothing at all there's a Premier League club with just one person saying you're putting so much pressure on that one person that again it's a risk for the club to have one person doing all this for the players because if they get COVID they get sick they leave the club they get hit by a bus whatever the club's got a massive black hole you know if you have transfer deadline day and the player liaison pulls down a well I mean whatever then Who's picking them up at the airport? Who's going to get them to the medical on time? Who's going to know where everything is? And like, why would you as a club who turns over hundreds of millions of pounds a year put all of that first impression, all of that, that you know, you look at Alexander, is it Alexander Silver? The guy, the guy um, Lester, who missed the transfer deadline with 14 seconds. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that's not, I don't know what happened there. I don't, you know, but imagine if you missed it by a minute because it took you two minutes to find a taxi or the taxi was late or whatever. Well, that's cost you 20, 30 million pounds. So I'm trying to show to clubs that actually this is something that's worth investing in. It's not a huge investment, but can have massive benefits. Um, I think you'll see clubs do more and more. And I think um, to, to say where it will go, I don't know exactly. I think I would like to see it being there a standard model across the Premier League where there's the um, NRL in Australia who have a standard wellbeing model across the clubs. So the league mandates, you have this person with this qualification and their sort of wellbeing profile follows them from club to club. So when you come to a club, I can access and see, right, okay, this is what he's been working on for personal development. This is what he works on. This is his family, all this. Now that doesn't exist in the Premier League right now. And it's very much like I'll speak. If we sign someone from Chelsea, I'd call the guy at Chelsea and be like, what's he like? Kind of thing, just off the record. Um, and I think I'd like to see that, but that's not something that I as an outside consultant can do. So, you know, I think what it'll be interesting where it goes and how, you know, much the players get involved in it. I think it's fine right now. I don't think it's great. I think it's okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I, what it looks like in 10 years, I'll, I'll be fascinated to see. Well, Hugo, to finish on a lighter note, there's one final thing that I have to ask on John's behalf, because as you can probably just about make out, he's wearing a Spurs shirt. How much did you enjoy the West Ham comeback for the 3-3 earlier this season? Because I've seen some pictures of you looking like you enjoyed it an awful lot. I remember I text the Spurs player liaison after about half an hour and was like, do you have any alcohol? Because this is going to be grim because you're going to be <laughs> all over us. And then that Lanzini absolute rocket went in in the like, 93rd minute, just running up and down an empty stadium, jumping on top of people where you're not really supposed to because obviously COVID and all this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Like, just... <laughs> so, well, yeah. Well, we have a we have a WhatsApp group amongst friends, and you can imagine we were all very supportive to John uh, when yeah, uh, when yeah. West Ham completed that comeback. <laughs> I literally was like posting selfies to all my friends on WhatsApp or Spurs fans, just like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I'm not a West Ham fan, but when when you get a result like that or, or a goal like that or whatever, you just you get so into it. So yeah, it's, yeah, so, that yeah. was insane. That was a water game. That was yeah. Um, Hugo, thanks so much for your time today. It's been been an absolute absolute pleasure. No problem. Thanks for having me. Good luck with the player care group, Hugo. I mean, it's a fantastic idea. And, you know, it seems like, seems like nothing could go wrong with that concept. Well, we'll, we'll see me in a year. And if I'm, uh, I'm yeah. homeless, then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll hold you to that one. But uh, <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So that was our interview with Hugo Schechter, who is former head of player care at both West Ham and Southampton has now set up his, his own consultancy, the, the Player Care Group. And, and just going back to, to West Ham for, for a second, Luke, I, I think that it's another feather in the cap of Renaissance man, David Moyes, that you know he brought Higo into his senior management team and really listens to you know, what he had to say from you know, what Higo was saying. And I, everyone has this perception of, well, I mean, I, I certainly have the perception of, of Moyes as a as a fairly fairly dated manager, and he's obviously kind of turning that around on the pitch a bit. But fantastic to see that, yeah, he's so open to ideas off it as well. 
Yeah, he gets he gets a really bad press, doesn't he? But from from what Hugo was telling us there, I mean, sounded very forward thinking in terms of his uh, his way of kind of managing the club and kind of. Uh, I mean, you mentioned it in the interview, John. Harks back to that kind of forward thinking that existed at AC Milan when we spoke to Bruno Dimichelis, where you kind of had a set of people that were kind of willing to kind of listen to all avenues of uh, of the system uh, to to kind of advance the fortunes of the club on the pitch. So yeah, I mean, Renaissance man. I mean, West Ham are doing great at the moment as well. So you know that it's obviously paying dividends um but i mean great conversation with hugo i mean a guy who's tangibly passionate about what he does for a living and and you could tell just by speaking to him in the hour that we had with him that having somebody like that in and around the club he would forge really strong relationships with the players gain their trust and and just be a huge asset to the organization yeah and i think that was reflected in some of the testimonials that that he was talking about i mean the fact that he could kind of email Ronald Koeman and get a response within a few seconds at a time when, when let's face it, he's got a lot of things to to kind of deal with at Barcelona. Is yes, testament to the work that that Hugo Hugo did. I thought it was quite interesting actually that you know he talks talks about the kind of importance of those those testimonials. And clearly, there is a role for data in improving the value of player care, and you know Hugo is at pains to to point that out, but. I think in a, in a week where Jermaine Genus has shown his absolute disdain for any kind of statistics, I thought it was quite interesting that uh, that, that Hugo was yeah was talking about the importance of those kind of anecdotal uh, references as well. Yeah, and no, I, I I was quite struck by the fact that he said there's kind of two sides to that. So there's making sure the players are happy. Um, but then there's making sure the club's happy. And I was quite interested in the sort of balance that Hugo talked about between those two things, where you can have a really happy set of players, but a club that's essentially a doormat and, you know, player power is like out of control and on steroids. And so, you know, there's an imbalance there. But likewise, you can have a very unhappy group of players because, you know, they have very little freedom. The club's dictating everything they have to do and that will probably affect their performances. So, a re- you know, there was that really interesting kind of dichotomy between the player care department having to look after the strategic aims of the club and kind of, you know, still be the the corporate side of the club, you know, keeping the players in line, making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to and they're delivering, but also kind of thinking about welfare, thinking about kind of making sure the players have as little to worry about as possible in their everyday lives. So yeah, really, really interesting kind of challenge. There's not too many roles, I think, probably out there that kind of face off to both aspects. Yeah, that's that's, that's a really fair point, actually. Uh, And, you know, he's, he's clearly learned from... From kind of his experiences, I thought it was interesting that you know he, he talks about potentially getting too close to the players at Southampton, actually, and you know that that was something he was really conscious of when he when he went into West Ham, uh, you know, and then you know, when he was at West Ham, you know, he was talking about about the the impact of, of social media on on some of the players that that he dealt with there, and the quote that really stood out for me was when he was talking about the player that had kind of come back onto the the team coach to receive a. Uh, a torrent of of notifications, you know, from what Hugo was saying, they, they definitely weren't positive. Um, and you know, when Hugo was saying, kind of, why why are you checking those? You know, why are you kind of, you know, why are you bothering to, to look? You know, the guy's reply was, that's part of being a footballer. I was just, just thought, what a grim kind of reflection of the state of affairs at the moment. Yeah, it's, that was really bleak. I, I thought exactly the same as you, actually. And, and I didn't disagree with, with with what Hugo was saying at that point. You you were kind of sat, sat, sat there listening. I think the saddest thing about that is it reminded me probably of like, you know, the 70s when I can imagine some of the abuse that was coming from the terraces back then was was, was absolutely horrible. And I imagine at that time you read a lot, you know, a lot of the players that talk about that era just say that was part of being a footballer back then. It's one of those things where it's just so difficult to accept, isn't it? Uh, it, it just doesn't make you feel good about, about the sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to see a, a kind of quick way out of, out of the current situation, unfortunately, it, you know th- this has been kind of dragging on for you know a few years now, and yeah, it, it, it sounds like even though there are kind of some promising discussions going on, I know with with, with the FA, uh, it's going to take quite a lot of work, I think, to kind of get to a point where where players feel like social media's or the majority of players may feel like social media is an environment where they can kind of where they can have a good time. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I mean, all the talk about, you know, the players are just going to leave social media. 
that seems such a an unfair and unjust outcome because they lose their platform, they they lose their ability to you know to reach out to their fans, to engage directly, to support good causes in the way people like Marcus Rashford have done. So it just seems you know there's a bit of me that just feels like that's kind of you know let, letting the bad people win basically. And I think that illustrates the role that the player care departments have to play in kind of helping players to to manage some of the some of the stress, frankly, that, that comes with dealing with social media. Yeah, it's definitely kind of going to be an emerging consideration for the player care department, uh, especially as a kind of, I suppose, a relatively new uh, phenomenon. And and on that subject, John, uh, Hugo was telling some anecdotes about how he how he dealt with COVID in his time at, at West Ham and thought some of them were a really enlightening look behind the scenes of, of, of modern football. Um, particularly struck by that kind of he described the pandemonium on the last day of uh, the season where basically players like holiday plans have just been totally um totally disrupted by covid and he was at pains to sort of stress okay you know a lot of people are like you know they're footballers great that they could afford to even consider going off to ibiza when a lot of people in the country weren't able to but it does make you realize doesn't it that that kind of uncertainty and you know how much players do need a break because they are under the spotlight we talked about fatigue you know and and you could see why that would be such a you know a huge disruption to kind of keeping a group of people just in a workplace, let alone a football club, kind of you know happy where they were. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I couldn't help but, but think actually when he was talking about the the tears that uh, the greet the news that the players couldn't go to Ibiza. Actually, thinking that I mean, if they've been to certain parts of San Antonio, <laughs> I think you'd probably be crying when you got there rather than crying at the prospects of not going. Yeah, um, I wondered if uh, I wondered if David Moyes had gone to the government and said, "Look, I've got ten players going to Ibiza. Could we just bring <laughs> something in, please?" <laughs> so that seems like a good point to end this week's show. Thanks very much for listening. If you want to stay in touch, then please visit our website, beatthepress.net. Mm-hmm.